I, I don't know about you, but that song never ceases to give me chills. Uh, the melodies, the harmonies, and especially the message. And those are words that I think we will all spend the rest of our lives uh, meaning. <laughs> and what I mean by that is when I sing those words now, I'm not so sure I understand the gravity of what I'm saying. That truly, whatever happens on this earth, because of the assurances that we've been given by God, I can say it is well with my soul. God's still got a lot of work to do on me uh, as I sing those words and as I mean what I sing and what I say. God's not done with me yet. I'm thankful for that. God's not done with you. He's not done with us. He's working on all of us. And we're here gathered together as those who've been saved uh, from our sins. As those who are undergoing this, what we call the sanctification process. Those who God is working on and molding and shaping to be more like His Son, Jesus Christ. God is gracious with us each and every day as we rely on Him to forgive us of our sins and as we rely on Him to continue that work in us that He began and that He will finish on the day when Jesus returns. If you're thankful for the rain outside, can I hear an amen? We're thankful for the way that God sends the rain to replenish and to water the earth. We needed it. It's been very dry. And so as we soak in uh, the, the riches of His Word this morning, our earth is soaking in uh, the rain from the sky. And we will leave replenished, hopefully, as the earth is being replenished this morning. I want to say a couple things before we really get into the sermon. Number one, tonight, I'm going to be talking about what happens when we die. Specifically, where the faithful go when they depart this earth. And what the Bible has to say about that. We have all faced the death of somebody that we love. And we all ourselves face death unless Jesus returns before we draw our last breath. Everybody in this room at some point will die. Where will you go if you are a faithful believer of Jesus? That's what we're talking about tonight at 6 o'clock. I'd love for you to be back for that study. Something that, a topic that affects us all. I also want to remind you to pick up a bulletin. Most of you do this, but I thought maybe a reminder is in order. We put a lot of important stuff in our bulletin that will keep you up to date on most everything that's going on with this church family. And so if you have forgotten in recent weeks or months or maybe even years to grab a bulletin, make sure you grab one on the way out this morning. Speaking of forgetting things. We talked about forgetting bulletins, but in the grand scheme of things, that's not a big deal. Have you ever forgotten something that is a big deal? Something that's important. Have you forgotten about an important birthday? It's confession time, church. Have you forgotten about the birthday of a child or a good friend uh, or worse of all, a spouse? That's the doozy. Have you forgotten about an anniversary? That's probably even worse. Um, have you forgotten about uh, a, an important commitment or an appointment that you had? I was up here one Saturday, I think putting the finishing touches on a sermon, and I pulled up in the parking lot and nobody else was here, but 
Pretty soon after I pulled up, another car pulled up, and it was one of our members, and I will not reveal to you who. No matter what you do to me, if you threaten to torture me after worship this morning to tell you who this was, I will not do it. My lips are sealed. This person was dressed uh, in Sunday clothes, and uh, they walked up, they were walking up to the door, and this person said, where is everybody? And I said, well, you know, who are you looking for? What group are you here getting together with? And this person said, well, it's Sunday, right? And I said, no, it's Saturday. <laughs> and this person said, I have just been through a lot lately. I've lost track of the days. And uh, so they left and I said, well, I hope to you know, see you tomorrow. Tomorrow's Sunday, the Lord's Day. Um, my father-in-law tells the story many years ago. He was asked by another couple, a couple that attended another church in town, to do their wedding ceremony. So he met with them for counseling. They decided on a day and time, an upcoming Saturday at noon. Uh, they decided on a place. It was going to be at the Reed House Hotel in downtown Chattanooga. And um, they were not going to have a rehearsal because it was a small wedding party. And so he wrote the ceremony. And that was that. About a month passes by, and he goes into the building on a Saturday to uh, put the finishing touches on a Sunday sermon. He's wearing old gym shorts, a ratty t-shirt, a ball cap to you know, conceal his wild hair. And he's in there, he's in sermon mode all by himself in the building. At about 11.45, the, the church office phone rings. And he thinks about not answering it because you know it's Saturday, the office isn't open, but thinking it might be his wife, Lauren's mom, he picks up and politely says, Red Bank Church of Christ. And the voice on the other end of the line says, are you on your way? And, you know, his mind is racing. He's trying to figure out who this might be. It's not clear to him who this is. So he hesitates. And then the person on the other end of the line says, this is Jimmy. Are you on your way to the Reed House for the wedding? Uh, and... That strikes pure horror in his heart. Because here he is on a Saturday in the office with you know these old clothes on. And so he is able to regain enough composure to say, uh, yeah, sure, I- I'm on my way. I'm cutting a little close, right? And so he gets off the phone and he begins thinking about who, who lives close enough to me that I can borrow a suit and a dress shirt and a tie because his house, Lauren's house growing up, was eight miles away from the church building that was too far. And so he thinks about one of his friends. He calls him up and says, I need you to get a suit out, a dress shirt, a tie, dress shoes. I'm late for a wedding. I'll explain later. He runs out the church office with Bible and the wedding ceremony in tow. He gets in the car, travels at breakneck speed down the road to his friend's house, bounds turns on two wheels into the driveway, bounds up the front steps into the front door. He's already taken off clothes, has to apologize to the man's wife. I'm sorry. He jumps into the suit and uh, the, the shirt and the pants. The pants are too short. The coat and the shirt are too tight. The shoes are too small, but they'll have to do. And he races back out the door as quick as he came. It's about eight miles to the Reed House in downtown Chattanooga. Breaks every traffic law that Chattanooga has on the books to get there, rolls in in the family minivan, tosses the keys uh, to the valet parking guy, and walks in the door, checks his watch. It's 12.08. All that happened in the course of about 20 minutes. There's no time for apologies. He just says, let's get started. And normally he remarks at the beginning of a wedding ceremony about how there's always something funny that happens 
to make the wedding memorable. And he says, today, I guess I'm the one who is the funny thing about this wedding. And silence. No one laughs. Uh, Especially not the bride and groom. Thankfully, this couple is still married today. And uh, my father-in-law has never forgotten about a wedding since that time. But that's that's a doozy. In the book of Hosea, God's people have forgotten something that's way more important than anything we have yet to to speak of. Something that's vitally important. Let's rewind a little bit. In the days of Moses, God, as you know, gave the people His law on Mount Sinai, and the people made a vow to God. This is in the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 19, verse 5. Let me read to you what God says. Therefore, to the people... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So that is God making a commitment to His people. And what do the people say in verse 8? They answer together, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And thus, on this occasion, the people and God enter into a covenant relationship with one another. It is a conditional covenant. And it is much like the covenant that a husband and wife enter on their wedding day. Now, fast forward many years to the time of Hosea. And Israel has come down with a serious case of spiritual amnesia. And Hosea hits on this in his prophetic work. In uh, chapter 8, verse 14, he says, Israel has forgotten his Maker. Israel made a covenant to God and God to Israel, but Israel seems to have forgotten about that. And then God Himself says, very sad verse, chapter 13, verse 6, they forgot me. I have slipped their mind. I have been erased from their memory. They've forgotten about that agreement. They've forgotten about the vows that we made. To one another. They forgot about the covenant that was sealed on the mountain when I gave them my law and entered into this relationship with them. And because Israel has forgotten the vow that she made to God, and because she has exchanged the true and living God for the worship of Baal, a very common idol, false god of this day, she is committing adultery on God. Israel. Israel is being un faithful to God. And so what happens in the book of Hosea, the very first few verses, Hosea commands, uh, or rather God commands Hosea to do something that is quite shocking. And I want us to go back and look at the verses that were read for us at the beginning of this worship hour. Starting in verse 1, Hosea 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah... And then in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So this places Hosea in a very specific time in history. It's the same time in which Amos was prophesying. In fact, it may be a little bit later. It may be getting a little bit closer to the time that the Assyrians were going to come in and were going to take over Israel, the land, and haul a bunch of people off into exile. In fact, a lot of people call Hosea the deathbed prophet of Israel because Assyria is literally knocking on the door here. 
And Hosea is sort of their last chance, the the last ditch effort to warn them against the people. And so this is in the 8th century, this is in the 700s, this is right on the cusp of Israel being taken over by Assyria. Verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, and what the Lord normally does with prophets is He tells them to go and to say something. He directs their words. But what does God do here? Here, He directs Hosea's actions. He tells Hosea not to go say something, but to go do something. And listen to what God tells Hosea to do. Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. In other words, God tells Hosea, I want you to go and to marry a woman who will, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I guarantee it, she will commit adultery. She will cheat on you. She will be unfaithful to you. Now how would we respond if God asked us to do such a thing? If He asked us to take a spouse who He tells us on the front end, this person is going to be unfaithful. This person is going to chase after another man or another woman. I would think that at least I would be resistant to that. That I would put up a fuss over that. God is wanting to make Hosea an object lesson. His life an object lesson. And Hosea seems willing to go through with this because God had asked him to do it. Hosea doesn't put up a fight. He is obedient to God. In verse 3, he went and he takes Gomer, who's the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceives and she bears him a son. And the reason, as we've hinted at, that God would ask Hosea to do such a shocking thing, a, a thing that we would say, God, why? Why would you tell us to do that? That's going to bring so much pain for me and for my family. The reason is, God wants to illustrate in a tangible way Israel's unfaithfulness. He wants to illustrate through the life of Hosea how quickly and how easily Israel had forgotten about her beloved. Had forgotten about the God into whom, with whom she entered into this relationship. This covenant. This is going to show the people in a way that they can touch and feel and see what Israel has done to me. So why has Israel forgotten? We might ask. How could they forget something so vitally important? I think about this 1991 movie Hook, which is uh, sort of a twist on the old Peter Pan story. Uh, and it's about how Peter Pan forgot how, that he was Peter Pan. The story opens, he's in his middle age, he's now known by the name Peter Banning, Uh, He has a wife and two kids. He's not a great father. He misses his oldest son's baseball game. Uh, He's a corporate lawyer living in San Francisco. He has no idea who he is, who he was, and it's only when he and his family go over to London uh, and his kids are kidnapped by Captain Hook. This is all fictional, by the way, just so you know. uh, That he has to go back to Neverland in order to rescue them, and that's when he he comes to understand that he really was Peter Pan. But the whole time as you're watching this movie, you're thinking, how could Peter Pan forget that he's Peter Pan? We may read this and say to ourselves, how could God's people 
forget that they're God's people. Well, they have forgotten for some of the same reasons that we forget. Let me remind you that we have entered into a covenant relationship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ that offers forgiveness of sins for us, and yet, don't we forget that as we go throughout our lives? Don't we often make decisions and speak words and do things and say things that don't reflect this covenant that, we're, that we have entered into with God? We're not always the best at remembering that we are in a relationship with God as well. In fact, as I read through the book of Hosea, we forget our vow to God for some of the same reasons that they forgot theirs. First of all, we have short attention spans, don't we? We have made a covenant with God, and it is a commitment and it is a relationship that requires sustained focus. But we don't have that, uh, especially in our culture today. We can't concentrate on something more than a few minutes at a time, and the media knows this. That's why we, get, that's why we have Twitter, and that's why we have these um, brief commercials that catch our attention, and that's why news shows that you watch bounce from story to story, because they know if they focus on a story for 10 to 20 minutes, their audience is going to be lost. We don't have the ability anymore to concentrate and to focus on something for more than just a few minutes at a time. How could we possibly give our whole entire lives over to this commitment, to this relationship that we've entered? Uh, Listen to what is said in uh, Hosea chapter 6, in verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? And just a little reading note, if you're reading Hosea, I hope you are, Ephraim is used as a synonym for Israel. So when you read Ephraim, read Israel. God is just using that as, as another word for His people His people in this book. So when He says here, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? He's saying, What shall I do with you, my people? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Your love is like a fog in the morning. And as soon as the sun comes up, it zaps it away and it's gone. That's what your love is like, Israel. Your love is like the morning dew. The grass is wet in the morning, but when the day warms up, it's all dry again. That's what your love is like. But listen to what God says in verse 6. But I desire steadfast love. I desire a love that lasts. A love that endures. Not a love that's here one moment and gone the next. But that's our struggle as it was with the Israelites. We have a short attention span. And this commitment requires sustained focus. And we have trouble focusing on something for a few minutes, for an hour, much less for our entire lives. It's hard. And yet, that's our calling. Another reason that we forget our vow, that we forget our commitment to God. This is a big one. And this might even deserve its own sermon, but but here it is. We have become distracted by our prosperity, by our wealth, by our affluence. That's what happened with Israel. Hosea chapter 13, verses 4 through 6. Listen to this. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. We would all agree with that, right? There is no God but God. There is no Savior but Him. He's the one who led our ancestors out of Egypt and rescued them. Verse 5, it was I who 
knew you in the wilderness in the land of drought, but when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up and they forgot me. So in other words, when they were out in the wilderness, they had to rely on me for everything. They were totally dependent on me for all things. But then when they got into the land flowing with milk and honey, and I told them I was going to bring them to this land, and there will be many blessings in this land, but that they would need to remain grateful to me or they would lose their focus, they lost their focus. And they became so enamored with their stuff, with their affluence and wealth, that they forgot about Who is the giver of all these things? And they took their eyes off God. And if that isn't what's happening in our country right now to a T, I don't know what is. People don't think they need God because of all their stuff. Our stuff, our possessions, our money, and the quest for more has become our God. That is the idol of our times. That's why churches are closing their doors. That's why not as many people are gathering to worship together. Because we have surrounded ourselves with so many luxuries and so many comforts, that has become what we worship. And we don't need God anymore. You see, when we were, when we were in the wilderness, we needed God. We relied on Him for all our needs, but now it seems like we can supply for ourselves and we're making it just fine without God. That's what happened to Israel. That's what's happening to us. Here's another reason. The last one. We view the relationship as a way to get what we want. That's what happened with Israel. God was this cosmic wizard and you could make a wish and He would make it come true. And when He didn't, when He stopped supplying for their every whim and wish, they started chasing after some other God who they thought could fulfill all their wants. Hosea chapter 2, verse 5. Their mother has played the whore. She conceived them as acted shamefully. She said, I will go after my lovers. And, and this, is, uh, this is an image here for Israel. Comparing Israel to this woman who says, I'll go after my lovers, a.k.a. false gods, who give me my bread, they give me my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. I will go after other gods because they give me what I want. And I will stop worshiping God because for some reason I'm not getting what I want from Him. But the fact is, we are so limited in our vision, we don't know the difference between what we need and what we want. And sometimes when God is giving us what we need, and because it's not what we want, we reject it. And when we do that, we reject true freedom. We reject true life, true salvation. We're so short-sighted, we've got to trust God that He knows what's best. He knows way better than we do what we need, and what eventually what we need is what we will want. What, it, what happened with Israel is God wasn't providing for all my wants. And so I'm going to try to get it elsewhere. And that's what we do today as well. And because of our unfaithfulness, we, this is what we deserve. We deserve for the Lord to put us away. And we don't like to think in those terms. We like to think of ourselves as, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I, I, you speak with people certainly, surely, who say this. People in the community People who may not go to church. I don't really go to church anywhere, but you know, I'm, I, I try to you know, be generous and I try to be kind and I'm a pretty good person. What the Bible reminds us is, we're not. <laughs> and we need God. We need a Savior to cleanse us from our, our sins. We're not good people. And because of our 
unfaithfulness, because we have chased after other gods, we deserve for God to divorce us. We deserve for Him to end the, end the covenant. That's what Israel deserved. And yet, what do we see God doing in the book of Hosea? Amazingly, we see a God here who's not severing the relationship as He should, as we deserve, but He's putting Israel in a position to return to Him. That's what He's doing in Hosea chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Look at this with me. God says, they're going after other gods. They're turning their back on me. They're forgetting me. But I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her way. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but she shall not find them. In other words, at every pass, I'm going to block their way. They're trying to run away from me. I'm going to put up walls. I'm going to put up thorns. I'm going to do whatever I can to redirect their path back to me because I'm not ready to give up on my people yet because I still love them because even though they've forgotten me, I haven't forgotten them and I'll do anything to get me back or to get them back in, my, in relationship with me. And listen to what he says at the end of verse 7. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. That's what God is after. That's the goal. He's trying to get His people to come to the realization that life is better with God in relationship with God than it is chasing after worldly things. And God, ruthlessly and aggressively, does things in our lives, He did so with Israel, to put us back onto a path that will end with Him. What does that tell you about God? It shows me a God with, and we throw the word love around, but it's love. It's true love. It's amazing love that we really can't even grasp. Yes, the people faced Punishment. They did. Punishment was coming for them. But that's not what ultimately God wanted them to experience. It's not what He had planned for them. They would have to pass through that, but through that time of discipline, they would be led back into a restored relationship with Him. That's the purpose of the discipline, of the punishment. Israel may have forgotten God, but God has not forgotten Israel. That covenant, those vows, they meant something to God. And that's why he tells Hosea in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. Remember, God told Hosea, go and marry a woman who will commit adultery on you. She does. She leaves him. She's with another man. Listen to what God says to Hosea. Go again. Go back. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. Take her back. Take Gomer back as I will take my people back. Even though they're committing adultery. Even though they're being unfaithful to me. The God that we see in Hosea is a God who pursues the people He loves even when they, even when we, forget about Him. Listen to Hosea chapter 2, verses 14-16. through 16, Some of the most beautiful verses in this book. God is saying, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to her. I will give her her vineyards. 
And make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. In other words, our relationship will become as it was in the beginning. I will restore my people to that place. I'll bring them back. I will woo them. Is God trying to woo you back this morning? Is He trying to allure you back into a relationship with Him? Are you resisting Him? Have you run away from Him? Have you put your focus on something else? On something worldly? And God is He's doing things in your life in order to draw you back in. That's the God that we read about in, in the book of Hosea. Today, God wants you to remember. He wants you to remember what it was like in the beginning. God says, my people, I'm going to take them back to the wilderness when they had to rely on me. In the early days of our relationship, I want you to think about your, the early days of your relationship with God. When you rose up out of those baptismal waters, when you knew that your sins had been washed away and you had been made as white as snow. I want you to think about a time in your life when you were on fire for the Lord. You were excited about doing His will. You were passionate about your relationship with God and you wanted to tell other people about Jesus. Think about those days. Allow God to bring you back to those days. Just as husbands and wives need to recall their vows to one another, it's important to think about the commitments that you made there at the altar to your husband or to your wife. So God's people need to recall their covenant with God. Truly, the key to staying faithful to God is a good memory. Isn't the long-suffering love of God amazing? When He ought to put us away, to divorce us, to sever the relationship with us, He doesn't. He does everything He can to woo us back. Even when we're unlovable, God loves us anyway. The story is told by a prominent preacher of the last century of a man who lived in Chicago and he traveled down to Kentucky and he found a farm girl down there who he fell in love with and he asked for her hand in marriage and they married and they moved back to Chicago. They enjoyed three years of, mar of happy marriage together. But then quite suddenly, she became very mentally ill. And at her best, she was not the person that he married to begin with. She would sometimes scream uh, so loudly that it would awake the neighbors. People were very disturbed by her behavior, and so he decided, I'm going to take her out to the suburbs, I'm going to build a home, I'm going to try to nurse her back to health there, which he did. But nothing seemed to be working, and so somebody suggested, why don't you take her back home? Take her down to Kentucky, take her back to the farm where she grew up, and maybe that will bring healing to her, to her broken mind. And so he did. Back to the farmhouse where memories hung on every corner and he would walk around with her and he'd walk down to, to the creek where she played as a child. He did this for many weeks and months, but even that didn't seem to work. And so, heartbroken and, and desperate, he took her and they drove back to Chicago together and on the way she fell asleep. Drifted into as deep a sleep as she had experienced in a long time. And when they got back to Chicago, it was late, she was still sleeping. He carried her in, laid her on her bed. She slept until early morning and she woke up. And he could just tell by the look on her face that something had changed in her mind. And she said, I feel as if I have been on a long journey. Where have you been? 
And he said, sweetheart, I have been right by your side this whole time. That's what God says to each of us. When we go off on journeys, seeking worldly ways of life, God is right there waiting for us to return to Him. He's waiting for you. Don't make Him wait any longer. Why don't you come as we stand and sing together?